and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42, and I've entitled this outline, This Do and Live. And I know that we could probably title a message the same thing and preach it out of at least three other books, and we'll reference those in a little bit. But these are the words that Joseph starts out with here in verse 18. Genesis 42, verse 18, And Joseph said unto them the third day, Remember, he's talking to his brethren. They've been put in the hold, and this is their last day in the hold. And he says, This do and live, for I fear God. If ye be true men, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison. Go ye, carry corn for the famine of your house, but bring your youngest brother unto me. So shall your words be verified, and ye shall not die. And might add here, and he says, ye shall not die. He's speaking of the famine. Ye shall not die. And they did so. And they said one to another, We are very, verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and, he, and we would not hear. Therefore is the distress come upon us. Three days in the hold... And the brethren all remember their trespasses against Joseph 20 years earlier. I, I know it, it would seem weird for me to say that's kind of a random memory for them to be dwelling on, but it's been 20 years. Many of them probably assumed he was dead, or most definitely a servant deep inside some, uh, someone else's home, not one who would be sitting atop a throne while they're sitting in a hold. Three days is all it took. We talked last time about how these brethren would have spent 20 years living life as usual, and you kind of get numb to these kind of things until something happens and shakes the usual up. Three days. It only took three days for this group of brethren to be removed from life as usual, and suddenly they remembered their greatest sin. And Reuben answered them, saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child? And ye would not hear Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. And they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them by an interpreter, which is uh, evidence we were, uh, we're referencing from last lesson as Joseph was using a foreign tongue in the presence of his brethren. They were made to understand what he was saying by the interpreter, but they did not know that he understood their conversations uh, with one another. So that conversation we just uh, read about of Reuben, Joseph would have understood all of it, and we'll read later that uh, he, he didn't travel far from them as this conversation started. So to those who, that would mock the power of the blood, they clearly have never experienced the guilt of wrongfully spilt blood like we're seeing spoken of here. Remember, they think Joseph's probably dead. Maybe some harm's come to him, and they know that they lied. They know that they took his coat and drenched it in blood to deceive their father. But earlier in this same book, if you'll flip back to Genesis 4, we see something very similar. In Genesis chapter 4, in the first 12 verses, and we've quoted this a couple times in the last few weeks, And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock, and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. 
And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. The Lord not only had some communication or awareness of the blood that was in Abel's offering as compared to Cain's, but he also had some communication or awareness of Abel's blood that was spilt. Much like when he first came into the garden and uh, after Adam and Eve had um, trespassed against him, he was asking questions that he already knew the answer to, rhetorical questions for Adam and Eve to consider. Up until that time, he didn't have questions like that for them. They were content. They were obedient. He didn't have to come in and teach them in such a way. But after the fall, after the, the biting of the fruit of the tree they were to avoid, he had to start saying, where is she? What have you done? And he had the same questions for the serpent. And here we see he asked questions of Cain. Where is Abel thy brother? Has God so early in creation lost one of the first five individuals to be born? Of course not. He knows where Abel is. He's causing for Cain to stir. Where is your brother? I wonder if this is what it was like for Joseph's brethren. I wonder if the Lord spoke in the prison during that three-day period. And where is Joseph? Because this is the conversation they're having. Joseph, as, as an Egyptian ruler they didn't recognize, didn't send them to the hold to think about the brother that wasn't with them. Not the youngest, but the other one that was not. He simply put them in the hold because they were believed to be spies. They were in there thinking about Joseph. In the New Testament, we see the death of our Savior. And we can note that his blood has been remembered now for 2,000 years. It still has power. It still saves. God caused for his blood to be effectual on all of the elect. Just how important is the blood? After a few days in prison, these brothers were left with a lifetime of memories and thoughts to occupy their time. Think about how perhaps if we were in that same situation, we'd long for our wives, our husbands, our children, maybe even our favorite spot in the home where it's quiet and we can just sit and relax. But they land on the guilt of Joseph's blood. I believe the Lord to be directly involved in all three of these examples, Joseph's brethren, uh, with, Je with Cain and Abel, and also with us in the Lord's blood. Think about Stephen's sermon uh, as he delivers it there in Acts. As he lays out how they had rejected God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And he says as of unto them, His blood is on your hands. His blood is on my hands. But I've been forgiven. And in his dying breath, he 
also pleads their forgiveness. Utilizing these distressing situations, God calls to remembrance the sins of the past that must be reconciled. Because not only the blood is important, but the reconciliation is required. Remember the widow woman that was used to tend to Elisha during that famine? What did she say during that great drought when her son fell sick as if unto death? In 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 18, she says the following, O thou man of God, art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? We seem to know instinctively that our sins bring death. We know scripture says it, but do we know it? Do we truly believe it? That all that we have done in this life has only inherited death. All that we will ever achieve, all that Brother Jerry does in Houston, all that we do here in Tulsa, it will only earn us death. Apart from Jesus, ye can do nothing. And ye can do nothing of substance, nothing of import, nothing that grants life, nothing that keeps life. Our sins of the past are not memories that can be forgotten, but it's more like a, 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 a wedding gown train that is drugged behind a woman. It follows us continually. It drags up loose dirt. It snags on uneven terrain, always reminding us that they are there. And the devil likes to bring it up to remind us that we are worthless, that we are habitual. Sometimes he'll bring it up to try to explain to us that we can't be forgiven of these things. We're despicable. It's the fear of God that causes this stirring. And Joseph says, uh, says it himself in the very first verse of our text. And Joseph said unto them the third day, this do and live, for I fear God. Can you imagine these Hebrew brethren hearing this Egyptian leader say that he fears God? Now, I'm going a little bit out on a limb, but because of Abraham's experience and Isaac's experience, it's very likely the Hebrews may have known at least the Egyptian word for God. Because it was a leader in Gerar that first told Abraham that he was told he was God's prophet, that Abraham was God's prophet. God revealed that to him. And now two of God's chosen lineage here for the promised seed, two of them have gone into Egypt and deceived. It's likely. And if they didn't recognize Joseph saying God, they certainly recognized it when the interpreter expressed it there was a fear in this leader of God. Not God's plural. This would have been a typical Egyptian leader. They, they, they trusted in and trust in multiple deities. But he expresses here that there is something to do, to live, because he fears God. The phrase in its entirety should sound familiar to us as it's used again and again and again in the Bible, Ezekiel uses it multiple times. And I'm just going to give you a couple verses out of Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18, 21, the prophet says, But if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he hath committed, and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Two verses later, he says, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God? and not that he should return from his ways and live. Dr. Luke writes on it in Luke chapter 10, 
verses 25 through 28. And it's just about a direct quote this time. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? This is Jesus asking the question. Very similar to the questions we just talked about in the Old Testament. What is, it, what is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. I assure you, Jesus knew what he was referencing. The Lord Jesus does not contradict the word given unto the prophet Ezekiel. Any that love the Lord will fear and do as the Lord has instructed. And if he or she does this, they shall live. Not because they were necessarily uh, obedient to the letter of the law, but because they had a fear of God. They had a reverence of God. They were caused to know him and respond to his voice. And what is the instruction of the Lord? Specifically in his ministry, it's been repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which lines up perfectly with what we just read from Ezekiel 18. And we read it in Matthew 3, 2, Matthew 4, 17, Mark 1, 15, Luke 13, 3, and 5, and so on, and so on. Those are just verses from the early parts of the Lord's ministry and the latter parts of John the Baptist's ministry who preached the same. And one last reference, James chapter 4, verse 15. He proves the providence and the sovereignty of God as he says here, for that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. Is what we should say when we make plans even if it's knocking on the door first thing in the morning, even if it's between here and the house. If the Lord wills, I will sit in that quiet place with my feet up this evening. If he doesn't, I won't. It is a great and merciful thing that Joseph does here for his brethren to point them toward reverencing God. Think of all the things that if we were in Joseph's shoes, we might want to say. And yet he says this, do and live for I fear God. Even this phrase, he could have said differently if he were spiteful, this do and live, for I am mad at you. This do and live, because I have not forgiven. This do and live, because you are my hostage. But he says, this do and live, for I fear God. For he to appear to them as an Egyptian official that feared God, it would have been humbling for those brethren that for 20 years had buried a line. A similar tactic happened with Abraham and Isaac, as we'd mentioned earlier. They both separately lied about their wives in Egypt and Gerar. The leadership of those foreign lands were caused to succumb to a greater fear of the Hebrew God than they appeared to have. The only difference this time, of course, was that this foreign leader was actually in Hebrew, Joseph. Let's look at the next set of verses before we close. Genesis 42, verses 24, 25, and 26. And he turned himself about from them, which is evidence that he was still standing there when they were talking about what happened to him. And he wept. And he returned to them again and communed with them and took from them Simeon and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph commanded to fill their sacks with corn and to restore every man's money into his sack and to give them provision for the way. 
And thus did he unto them. And they laded their asses with the corn and departed thence. Couple of semantic things to make sure that we understand uh, the age of these brethren. It, the one who spoke up, Reuben, he would have been the oldest one responsible for the situation that was taking place. He kind of outs himself saying, I defended uh, the cause of at least not killing our brother, and the next in line would have been Simeon. Now, we got to consider what's at stake here for these brethren as they return home. It's not as simple as we're going to take our stuff and run, which has been what they've done in the past. Shechemites, Joseph, and so on and so on. And, and to be fair, it's also what daddy did. Remember Jacob. Joseph was going to keep Simeon, according to verse 24, and the others were permitted to carry grain back to their houses. Joseph was not likely giving them enough to last them the entirety of the famine. Uh, please remember that Joseph knew when the famine was coming to an end, but it's very unlikely Egypt broadcasted this out to the foreign nations. If they were concerned, uh, as we've seen already in our text, they were concerned about spies. They certainly didn't tell the rest of the world when this famine was coming to a conclusion. They probably didn't tell them much of anything. So they were in a strangely familiar situation. They had a couple of options. They could abandon their brother Simeon, never return to face this Egyptian ruler and bring back their remaining brother Benjamin. If they didn't come back, they and all their kingdom would surely perish. The grain they had was very likely going to run out in a short time. He was giving them grain, and this was likely going to be a, maybe a few weeks worth of meals. I mean, this is a few days' journey already, but at least some meals to get them by. They're in a, a famine, a drought. They weren't going to plant this grain and grow their own. There was only one place this grain could be renewed or re-given, and that was Egypt. So if they took option one, everybody dies, just like Joseph said would be the case. Would they continue as they had done to Joseph and abandon yet another brother and eventually perish themselves? Or would they walk by faith and beg their father? Keep in mind, Jacob is already communicated that he is set against Benjamin going to Egypt. But will they walk by faith and beg their father to let them bring Benjamin back to Egypt with them? Doing so would prove that they did fear God, that they were indeed repentant as they turned away from their prior direction, the habitual sinfulness that we'd already seen, and doing so they would live. Now I want to caution, and I did this a little bit last time, I want to caution as we study this text to not infer too much of what we think Joseph is weeping over here. Uh, the text over the last few chapters has made it pretty clear that Joseph has given God the glory for all that had been done. And he's going to say so himself in that very familiar verse that we're going to run into very shortly. Again, he named his children signifying the fact that God had allowed him to forget the harm that they had done and God had allowed or caused for him to be fruitful. His weeping here is likely over the fact that his brothers remembered in just three days the harm that they had caused him. And he wants to see the Lord work. I know that's a sappy Baptist hope. But I believe that there's a short list of things Joseph's weeping over here. And it's very likely since he was there and understood their tongue and heard them talk about what they had done, heard them say that surely the Lord has called this back up. Maybe he's just weeping over the fact that he sees that God is working. We've done that. Maybe he's weeping over the fact that he's 
desperately yearning for God to do a work here. Maybe he's weeping because they seem remorseful over harm that they'd caused him 20 years ago and they don't see the good that God had done with it. He longed to see God work and God most assuredly was working all things out according to his will for the nation of Israel. This is almost a political uh, UN meeting of sorts back in that day because the nation is very nearly approaching the time in which they would be incubated inside of another nation. They would be very fruitful there for a long period of time. This is a very big deal. God grants seven years of plenty, seven years of dearth, as Isaac taught on that followed right after it. And the intention of the entire thing was to move his nation inside of Egypt. There's a lot of other things that we're going to talk about as we go into Exodus. But we can't lose sight of how amazing that is. If America was suffering a famine right now, and our only hope was to be incubated inside of another nation, who would take us? Any nations that are just going to open up the doors and say, well, come on in here, America. Beloved, Egypt wouldn't have welcomed it either. Joseph had to be exactly where Joseph is to set in motion by God's hand the sequence of things that we are about to read. Every verse is an intricately placed moment in time that God had foreseen before the foundation of the world. He's not reacting. He's not reacting 20 years later to what Joseph's brethren did. This was all according to his plan, his will, and the good of his nation. In this text, we also see that Joseph gave the orders to restore every man's money into his sack. What they brought to purchase the grain was returned unto them without their knowing. Joseph was a Romans 12 man, beloved. We keep talking about Romans 12, and here it is. Joseph, a great example. And we'll see more of this in our next lesson, but I, I want to leave you with this. When the brethren discover what had happened when they had observed the actions of this Egyptian ruler, their response was this. What is this that God hath done unto us? Chapter 42, verse 28. What is this that God hath done unto us? I know it's been a while, but go back tonight and look up the, the, the moments when Jacob is reminded that God was for him. There's about a three to four chapter span where Jacob never mentions God at all. And yet he tricked the blessing away from, well, we say in the flesh tricked, we know it was the Lord's will, but he tricked the blessing away from his father and did what with it? Set it under a rock. And then God put, allowed for him to be put into some situations in which, remember me? Even when the Shechemite thing happened, God, as though he pulled Jacob and his flock underneath his wing, took him out and gave him strength, just before he lost the handmaid he's known his whole life, just before he lost his wife, and after Dinah was raped and a nation was massacred, God was there. 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll close with this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. This is the promise that we see fulfilled there in Genesis 42, 28. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, 
glorify God in the day of visitation. It may not sound like it, but for Joseph's brethren to say, what is this that God hath done unto us? That is glorifying God. And what Joseph's about to say, the verse that's on all of our lips, when he talks about what they had done and meant for evil, this is all going to line up for them. They're going to see God's hand through this entire thing. And it's exactly how it had to be. Praise God for how good he is, how merciful he is, how powerful he is. That he doesn't have to stop time, though certainly he would have the ability to. He doesn't have to freeze anything or wipe anyone out of existence to accomplish his will. Time just merely has to pass and his will is done. Do you ever think about that? All of this cosmos above us and around us, that we are just this little blip. But he never one time has to set these pieces aside or, or move them to their correct location. They are always right where they were supposed to be. Amen. He already knows whether Pluto is a planet or not. And nothing that we have decided will ever change his perception of that. It just God is so much bigger than we give him credit for. Amen. Well, As we go around the room to pray, please remember the meeting in Inverness this weekend. Our, our brethren as they travel... Um, and when we close prayer, please remember to give our dear brother a handshake of fellowship as he departs from this place. It certainly won't be the last time that we are with him and, and see him, um, but he has a journey ahead. So do, do pray for him if you would. And, and we'll start with Brother Jerry. Uh, I try to find a way to work it out that Charlie's last again, but it's not going to work. We'll go with, to, from Jerry to Robert, and we'll, we'll come this way. You want to pray for us, brother?